Hi there. Welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Friday, October 23rd. Coming up today, the specifics on Project Engage 416 and Toronto Police Service's plan to tackle gun and gang problems by introducing neighborhood teams. And we ask callers to weigh in on the province's plan to invest in skilled trades. Let's start off the podcast by making sense of some COVID-related headlines with infectious disease expert Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. As a woman over 40, I normally love dimmer switches. However, when it comes to the Ontario Hospital Association, who have admitted that uh, right now hospitals are not ready to handle this second surge because they are, it's not about the spaces they have available to them. It's about the amount of staff available to them. They say that one quick solution would be using what they call a dimmer switch to shut down elective surgeries once again to free up more beds uh, and staff. Can you talk about how concerning this dimmer switch is on, on the whole? This is concerning. It's something that uh, we talk about a lot when it comes to uh, pandemic planning. And uh, even before COVID, with influenza, there have been fears that we are kind of already operating in many hospitals, especially in the big areas, close to or over 100%. And then flu hits, and, you know, we always have these kind of worries, so then surgeries can get cancelled. That said, obviously, we have two things to worry about this winter with COVID and and influenza. And I think that this is something that it's being put in the news, but it's, it's something that's dealt with every year during influenza, even before COVID. So you think this is more of a headline? You're not too concerned about this? Because we already have a backlog of nearly 200,000 surgeries in Ontario because we canceled the elective surgeries in the spring. Can we even afford to consider this again? Absolutely, I'm concerned for, for that very reason. This is part of the reason why, like, you know, back in the spring, we had, we had no choice. We kind of had to lock down because we had this tidal wave coming towards us. But now we're seeing that, look, when you do lockdowns, uh, sometimes it's, it's needed, but there's all sorts of unintended consequences, and this is one of them. Elective surgeries, surgeries for cancer, uh, you know, a diagnosis of different uh, conditions. Uh, it's really important. We have to remember that when we do this, lots of downstream effects can happen. Right. And one of the the problems uh, that has, uh, I guess, uh, one of the challenges that we're facing is that the province has brought in its uh, single employer edict. So this is their directive to only allow long term care staff to work with one employer. Can we uh, consider removing that? And how could we mitigate farther harm that could come to residents in long term care if we do? Yeah, this is a really tough one, and I, I think that that was needed. That was one of the biggest interventions that helped long-term care, and they were one, they were one of the hardest, if not the hardest hit uh, sector of the community. So, you know, I don't know, and I mean, there's also um, also other banks of people that could be used, you know, foreign graduates, uh, people that are close to the end of training but not quite there yet. You know, it, it, we're going to need some innovative solutions because, you know, staffing is important, and, you know, um, we're starting to see things heat up with COVID, so it's uh, we're going to need something uh, quick. Okay, let's turn our attention to Waterloo Region. Uh, This story uh, might not seem like a big headline story, but to parents, it might mean something. Waterloo Region District School Board says no to Halloween costumes this year. The reason is that costumes and shared food and customs often associated with Halloween are incompatible with the guidance that they've provided to their schools and received from public health. And they've said we spent a past number of weeks establishing routines and they're very worried that these routines would be disrupted by Halloween. Now, the Catholic School Board in Waterloo is going to leave it up to their schools 
to um, deem if it's appropriate or inappropriate for kids to wear ha- Halloween costumes to school. But is this really necessary to, you know, cancel Halloween costumes at school? I think this is a, a bit of an uh, overreach, uh, is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think that, look, Halloween is something that's been a part of for all of us that grew up in, in Canada. It's one of my favorite things. And I think that there are definitely lots of things that can be done to make it safer. Um, you know, I'm always going to respect public health decision. It was a tough one. But, you know, this doesn't mean that we need to completely kibosh the entire thing. Um, I understand the reasoning. I don't agree with it in terms of the, the school's decision. But, um, you know, there's plenty of ways that you can keep things physically distant while still having a Batman costume on. And I think that uh, we might have lost sight of the big picture with the discussions on this. Uh, We uh, just heard yesterday that the Alberta government announced a pilot project that would allow international travelers to forgo the federally mandated two-week quarantine period. This is for a rapid COVID-19 test. So what's going on in Alberta is that... um, they will, you'll receive a COVID test, 19 test, when you enter Canada before entering into quarantine. And if the test comes back negative after what, 15 minutes, because it's a rapid test, then you'll be allowed to leave quarantine. And then you'll have to take another test six or seven days after your initial arrival, just to make sure the first one was um, accurate. So it's not mandatory, uh, but you can choose to do this. Ford said when he was asked about the pilot project, if we do something similar, he said he wants to wait for results uh, before commissioning a similar program in Ontario. But we know Premier Ford is really a big fan. He's been begging for rapid tests. Is there any worry in your mind about rapid tests and their, in some cases, lack of efficacy when it comes to, you know, kiboshing the quarantine period for international travelers? Should we be concerned? Yeah, you know, I I was uh, doing a lot of reading about this, including on the actual WestJet site, and there's precious few details on what they're actually doing, which tests they're using, because that makes a big difference. There is the one benefit of rapid testing, if we can get the right ones and use it properly, where you can actually pick up, even if somebody has COVID, whether they're contagious or not. And that's something that certainly can have a widespread type of um, application. But here, yeah, I'm worried. I want more information. How are they going to do the testing? What are they actually uh, trying to uh, reduce? Um, When is the repeat testing going to happen? My big worry right now is you don't, you miss somebody who's incubated the virus, then they become, you know, contagious the third day they're back, and then they can infect people in their households. Now, there's very, very few people that are traveling right now, and this might also have the unintended effect of making people want to travel a lot more, which we know has its own risks. So, you know, I, I'm very trepidatious about this. I want to know a bit more before I make a final judgment on it. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on this, Suman. Uh, when you think about how this how quickly this pandemic has traveled across the globe. And when you look to Europe right now, where they are really concerned about their numbers and they're fully into a second wave. And if that's the sign of things to come here in Canada, I don't, I don't have a problem with keeping people in quarantine for two weeks. I, I, I'm sorry, who is that going to harm? I agree. Now, there's an argument that you know, people aren't doing it properly, but I've always said one thing is that, uh, and something Dr. Bogach mentions a lot, is that uh, perfect is the enemy of good. We don't have to be perfect, but I think that we sh- still should be doing the right thing. Maybe you know, in the near future, we might have a test that allows us to, at the point of care, tell us who's contagious and not, and do that regularly until the point of contagion or the point contagion stops. But right now, we're not there yet, and that's why I think this seems premature to me, this, this uh, initiative. 
All right, Dr. Simon Chakrabarty, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. I know you're a busy guy, so I'm going to let you uh, go and uh, start your day. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. Yesterday, the Toronto police basically conceded there's a bit of a problem with these gang sweeps. They haven't been as effective at shutting down guns and gangs that are taking over neighborhoods in the city of Toronto. And so they also uh, announced that they're going to be um, launching these neighborhood teams as part of Project Engage. Here to talk about it, Detective Constable Ron Chinzer with the Toronto Police Force. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Well, why have these gang sweeps largely been effect- ineffective? Well, you know, I don't think they've been ineffective in the way that it's, it's being presented or spoken about. I think they've been effective for what the aim of the intent was. I think where the ineffectiveness came is that the bulk of society expected that to resolve the issue of gangs and gang problems. I mean, there's two aspects to look at it. On one end of it, the most obvious and the most impactful to most of the world, including the city of Toronto, is the gang violence that occurs, because that impacts everybody. It puts people in a state of fear. But the other sure. aspect of it is what happens to somebody from the age of zero to 18 to become a gang member? So when we talk about the effectiveness of gang enforcement strategies, they work to solve the violence problems, but they don't ever address the root cause issues. Okay, so the project uh, Engage, uh, the whole, I guess, goal is to get to the root causes through neighborhood teams. Can you tell me a little bit about what the, I understand there's five core components to that project. Yeah, there are five core components. So to give everybody a little bit of a background, so the project is hashtag Engage416. The website is Engage416.ca. We're pretty transparent with what we put up there, our aims, our goals, and our timelines. But we have five strategies that kind of, coincide during four different pillars. So the project neighborhood teams are focused on four main pillars. It's education, it's learning and sharing and consistently giving back to the community, learning back from them and every other impacted stakeholder. And then there's prevention, targeting, you know, kids from the age of zero to 12 that have no mitigating factors for all of the risk factors in their life. Intervention component is targeting kids between 12 and 18 that are currently involved in the criminal justice system who really need to be addressed at a root cause social issue. And then the suppression being continuing to form uh, strategies. But all of those things combined, there's five main strategies. The first one is community mobilization, which is the involvement of local community members, including former gang involved persons, community groups, social service agencies, and the coordination of programs and staff functions within and across stakeholder agencies being, again, anybody impacted, schools, social services, all those other impact players. The second now, strategy, sorry, go on. Yep. Oh, I was just going to ask about the community mobilization. That actually yeah. led to Project Engage, didn't it? I mean, it, if it, it wasn't for you holding town halls, I think, did you hold about 30 of these over the past year? We, uh, we with did. people in the community, you wouldn't have been able to set this up. No, that that would have been that's 100 percent correct. Uh, again, four years ago, our current chief, Jim Raymer, was a deputy chief at the time, imposed the problem statement. How do we get a gang member out of a gang? Uh, myself and Detective Jason Condo were tasked with figuring that out. But over the course of trying it out, getting involved in the academic research, benchmarking globally with other agencies, everybody could think of. We realized, oh, man, listen, the one target group that was never engaged, the stakeholder group to get their full input was the community in itself, which drove that's us ridiculous. You know what? It is. But if you look across any other agencies, any other government entities or social services, we always try to assess problems from the outside in, right? We see what the problems are and we say, okay, here are the solutions. And those solutions are valid. But again, they don't get the nucleus of it. So with us, we said, you know what? We're going to focus and dedicate a year of intensively engaging the most impacted communities. 
So we hosted 30 gang prevention town halls between September of 2019 and March of 2020, over 1,600 participants, uh, 75 government and non-government organizations, and we hosted in a way that was really focused on them. We got to know everybody, we sold them the framework, but we wanted their input on how do we fill the gaps here. And what they provided us was incredible and really put us on to Project Engage 416. Okay, so I want to focus on that if we could, because I know we could go through the pillars and we could go through the core yeah. strategies, and that's all good. But I think we lose people sometimes when we, you know, start talking. Yeah, you know, like we're delivering you know, a, a PowerPoint a presentation. Yep. So let's talk about these members of uh, the community that are going to play a major role in Project Engage. You are uh, putting up neighborhood teams, you're putting them together. Who would this consist of? How many uh, people from the community are you looking for? And and what's their job? So the way, this, or excuse me, the way the neighborhood teams work is we have 12 target neighborhoods in City of Toronto's Northwest Quadrant. We're focusing, sorry, we're focusing there as a bit of a pilot area to see where are the successes and where are the failures. And ideally, who we'd like to have represented on these neighborhood teams are the most impacted community members. We're talking about the family members of gang members, gang members themselves, ex-gang members, victims of gang membership uh, and violence, as well as anybody in that neighborhood that feels impacted, that feels like they don't have a voice and what happens at their neighborhood level. So we conduct really intensive outreach, which is our goal right now to connect by December with at least a minimum of 10 impactful people per neighborhood. So we want to have a 10-member community base of anybody who wants to help uh, figure out the problems on there. And then on the back end of it, we have the social service agencies within those localized neighborhoods. I mean, what better than to connect the many social agency medias with community members to help drive the solutions from the inside out. And then for us, we have police officers, community officers, anybody and everybody who wants to participate in solving the problem, you can join. You don't even have to be from that neighborhood. For example, we have a conference call this morning with about 30 different volunteers that are from outside communities that are come from real franchise backgrounds that want to give back to the city and they want to participate. So anybody that wants to help out, the invitation is open. So you'll have outreach workers from grassroots agencies to faith-based organizations to local businesses. That's what you're looking for. When you talk about the people that might have family members that were in gangs or ex-gang members, you know, we we constantly hear that the community most at risk is very is living in fear, you know, in fear that uh, there might be uh, repercussions to talking to police. How scared are these people to participate or if they reached a breaking point now where they realize if they don't participate, things will only get worse? They're at the breaking point. Uh, I can't even tell you the number of conversations we have that are absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, this week alone, we went out, we engaged on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, these neighborhoods, and we had three separate conversations of parents who don't take their kids to the local park because they were either witnesses of shootings in those parks or they were shootings that happened nearby. They're so frustrated. And the other frustration part of this is with COVID-19 and people being secluded to their households and now not even being able to take your kids to the local neighborhood park out of fear of gang violence, they're triple motivated to want to come out and participate. They're sick of it. The reality is a lot of us, even a lot of the people listening, we don't live in those communities. I police there, but I don't live there. You know, we talk about it on the radio, but we don't live there. Imagine for a minute, that's where you live. There is no driving home from work. So for them, once we realize, okay, we can engage them, they're desperate for help. When is the last time anybody's gone into those neighborhoods with those families, with those neighborhoods that are just victimized by this 24 hours a day, seven days a week, living in that anxiety and trauma and said, where do you need help and where can we help you? 
It almost okay. never happens. So, Detective, I, I unfortunately have to wrap up our yeah. interview here. Yeah, but no problem. In the last 30 seconds, uh, you know, they need help. When are they going to get it? When should we see these neighborhood teams materialize and start doing work? We're working on it right now. Uh, so hopefully by the aim is by January of 2021 and all of these 12 neighborhoods to have a minimum of 10 community members and a minimum of five social agencies per neighborhood represented. And the immediate action is going to be right now. So while we're collecting people, we're still working localized initiatives to help solve the small problems before they become big. We're still connecting people with existing resources, and we're still facilitating the current exit of current gang members that want to get out of the lifestyle. So when we're talking about action plan, it's happening right now. All right. Well, hopefully uh, we'll talk more about Project Engage 416 in the coming future. It sounds like a biggie. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you very much. All right. Yesterday, Doug Ford announced that uh, we will be launching major infrastructure um, uh, projects here in the province. Wants to get the province back to work. And he also wants to open up some opportunities for people that want to get into uh, apprenticeships, if whether it be for electricians or plumbers, those skilled workers that Ontario so desperately needs. I uh, just want to know if you're steering your kids towards these professions now, uh, especially with the pandemic. And you realize, wow, okay, if, if my kid was a plumber, they, they would be working nonstop. It, it, it just doesn't stop. There's a very secure industry. Ian, you work at Skills Ontario. Um, what's your take on on the appetite to get into uh, the, the, the skilled uh, workforce? I think there has been a longstanding stigma against going into the skilled trades, and that's what our organization is all about, letting young people know about what these opportunities are because so they consider a career path that they might not be exposed to otherwise. Uh, parents have been a huge impact and huge influence on their kids' decisions. So we're also trying to get to, to parents and make sure they're aware of these opportunities and what the career paths can take to. These can be exciting uh, careers or well-paid careers, uh, open a lot of doors. And I think one of the things about the pandemic that we're looking at is the, uh, the need for these types of jobs. I think it's highlighted what's important, what we need to keep the economy going, what's needed to keep the economy running health and safe, uh, safe manner. So I think there's a lot of opportunities that uh, that we can we can continue to promote, and that's what Skills Ontario has been doing for 30 years. And I think I think time is timing is uh, is right on our side right now. So I think we're getting a real resonance that perhaps uh, we haven't had in the in the past. So I'm I'm quite optimistic about allowing us to work with uh, with the, the schools, the educators, and we've also been trying to do some uh, reach out to parents as well. And I should point out that the Ontario government is a longstanding uh, major partner of ours. Let me ask you this. The obstacle is one of the main obstacles why people decided they didn't want to get into skilled labor is the fact that you are going to have to do some hard physical labor and and long hours. Is that one of the obstacles to get past? Well, it is, but but the way jobs and work is done now, there's some that obviously require uh, some uh, some heavy labor, but technology has also changed a lot of ways uh, the jobs are done. And, uh, and I think it's just people are looking at the old school, the old perception. I worked in uh, manufacturing for many years, and they had that similar challenge as well. People were looking at manufacturing as outdated, dirty, dank, dangerous, depressing. But the realities are quite different now. And I think that's what we're trying to do is, uh, is portray the realities, give a more positive uh, impact on, on what skilled trades and technology careers are all about in 2020 and beyond as we go forward. 
It's interesting that you bring that up, Ian, because uh, my nephew, uh, w- he went to school, went to college for robotics, and he's now uh, waiting to become an apprentice to be an electrician. And he said a lot of the skill sets he learned in robotics are transferable into becoming an electrician. And uh, it's got him really excited about that trade. That's great. That's that's great. And that's what we're trying to do is create that excitement, that awareness, and, and help kids build, build their future. Uh, we are somewhat impacted, like everyone, by the pandemic, and we can't go into the schools, but we're still offering our presentations virtually. We've, uh, we normally hold the biggest skills competition in the country in May, and uh, you know we attract 40,000 people, 2,500 competitors, uh, First Nations Conference, the largest young women's conference in the country. We've had to move all that to uh, remote delivery, and we're really impressed with the, the pickup we're getting and, again, the resonance we're getting. But we do look forward to going back to those experiential in-person opportunities when we can safely. Well, Ian, I want to thank you for uh, reaching out and tuning into the show and and calling up to to tell us what you're up to. Uh, Thanks very much. Have a great day. Uh, Stephen Toronto, you are on uh, on the other side of this story. You say it's not a good idea. You don't want the market oversaturated. Do you work in a a skilled trade? Yeah, I'm a plumber. And uh, my plumbing license is number 23,000 and change. And that's just GTA. So obviously over the years, people have passed, people have retired. But there's a lot of us out there. And you're going to go introduce how many what? Even, a, even 10, 20,000. All you're going to do is saturate it. And we're middle class. We work hard. All you're going to do is saturate it. And then we're going to be working for 15 bucks an hour. So All you're right, just so going to kill it. They're going so to kill you it. say there's no, we don't need more skilled labor as far as we're, you know, the area of plumbing is concerned. Look up plumbing on Kijiji. Okay, just GTA. It's going to be a thousand ads coming up. How many of those guys are actual plumbers? They're not. They're fake. They just know how to, you know, the technology has made the trade a little bit easier. You too. So, I mean, those guys are undercutting me. I got people, you know, calling me off to Gigi, kicking tires, and oh, well, you're way too expensive. Right. Okay. I appreciate the the call. I think it's important to say you get what you pay for, though, at the end of the day. And, you know, if you are looking for a trade, you want them to be licensed. Hey, John in Richmond Hill. Well, hi, Kelly. uh, I'm going to echo the same sentiments as the fellow who just, uh, Stephen, I think it was the plumber. I've been in HVAC almost 28 years. And I guess it's easy for a lot of people sitting behind a desk and they're talking about great pay and great uh, um, career. At the end of the day, the, the physical toll, regardless of what technology has done, and made it a bit easier. The physical toll till still takes a large toll on your body. Like I'm mid fifties and you know, I have friends of mine who are not in the trade and they're a lot better off physically than, than I am. Yes, I've made a good living. Uh, the problem is, is just like the other fella said, we are out there now competing with people that are undercutting substantially. And I know what you're saying about you get what you pay for, but mm-hmm. it still it still does cut your grass, so to speak. I mean, it doesn't matter if I do a great job. People are looking at price. So, uh, no, my son, Andy, but, uh, you know, he's now taking uh, a course at university in, a, in hopefully finish his law degree and perhaps be a lawyer. I don't know. But I'd rather him do that and, uh, and pursue that because uh, I echo the same sentiments. And a lot of tradespeople out there look at this as um, – a make work and seem like the government's doing something. But in reality, apprentices in large companies are really treated for the first year or two. Honestly, Kelly, they're like coffee jockeys. They're cleaning up, sweeping. Very little of the trade is learned. And that's got to be addressed because the government gives money to these companies. 
our company is a small shop, so we don't really do that. The guys are hands-on. But some of these large companies, it takes a while. And you know what? The kids get frustrated. And they... So I don't know. Uh, I just think that, yes, trades are great. If you have no other option, go for it. But it's not as all the, it's all, all gold that glitters at the end of the day. Appreciate your call, John. Thanks for the honesty. I, with that, I'd love to get to the other calls. It's, it's uh, obviously a lot of people want to talk about uh, what Doug Ford announced and if, if we need more skills and the problem with uh, people working in, in skilled trades right now. Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. We broadcast daily live from 9 to noon on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Have a fantastic day.